Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. Rick Thomas here, and this is Life Over Coffee. If you're new to our ministry, thank you so much for coming by. Just go to lifeovercoffee.com, and we have a sanctification center. I call it my coffee shop, and this is where we have thousands of resources, and they're all free to you, and they all deal with sanctification. And so if you want answers, if you're struggling, if you're going through a difficult time, whether it's marriage, parenting, personally, you got big decisions that are in front of you, well, I trust that we would be able to help you, and I want you to take advantage of all of our resources at lifeovercoffee.com. That is what we do. We offer help and hope for you and for others. We try to create conversations for transformation, and I trust what I have to share with you will stir up one of those conversations that will lead toward transformation because I want to step into the crucible of suffering. I mean, really just the epicenter of it. And I want to talk about some complex things that we have to wrestle with. And so I've titled this, How to Respond When Blindsided While Doing Good. And so that is the context that I want you to think about. Let's just imagine that you're doing good. You're minding your own business. You're not thinking about sinning or anything nefarious. You just want to love God and you want to love others. And you are going about doing that every day. And then your life just falls apart. Now, we have to think about that. And that's what I want to do here. I am talking about the crucible of suffering the epicenter of of trouble, right in the heart of it. And as you probably already know, the crucible of suffering will reveal our most authentic thoughts about God and also our authentic thoughts about other people. When you are in the heat of the trial, it will purge all distractions and everything from your life, and you will be just left sitting there in the rubble of your trouble, And your thoughts will be about God and other people and what's going on in your life. It is really a distraction-free time when the trouble comes. And whatever rises to to the top of your mind, well, that is your genuine faith. And here's a kind of an odd thought maybe for some of you to think about. Sometimes the Lord will put us in that crucible even while we are doing good things for Him and other people. And it has a way of sanctifying our faith, uh, revealing our genuine faith. There's a man in the Old Testament that you're quite familiar with, I'm sure. His name is Job, and that is exactly what happened to him. He was a good guy going about doing good things. He was a terrific guy who loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, but his world fell apart while doing good and that is really the that is really the tension in our lives. And so what I would like to do for the next few minutes is just stroll through the first chapter, only the first chapter of the book of Job. And I trust that we can not only learn about his genuine faith and his horrific trial, but I hope that we can make some application to our own lives as well. And so let's start with chapter one, verse number one. And this is what it tells us. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, don't you want that on your gravestone? I mean, isn't that the testimony that we want? I mean, that is a great testimony to have. Now, I know that there are no good people. 
as far as perfectly good. I understand that. We all have our problems. But Job was a good guy. And Job was trying to do the right thing. And many of you are that way as well. I know now and again he did wrong. Now and again, you and I, we fall. But but you would not characterize yourself that way. We would not characterize Job that way. He would be characterized as a good person. And I'm sure that he has sin struggles because, again, he's like you and me. He's born from the Adamic cloth, born in Adam. And so there would be episodic moments in his life where he sinned, where he made mistakes, where he did said the wrong thing, but that would not be the pattern in his life. He was a good man. I mean, everybody sins. I sin daily, but I'm not characterized by sin, and that is not how things ought to be, to be characterized by sin. And I trust that you're not that way. Job was not that way. He was a man who loved God. You could say he was a saint who occasionally sinned. He went about doing good. He was aware of the wisdom of honoring God, and we see that in chapter 1, verse number 5, and he was not fearful in his service to the Lord. Job is the kind of guy that I want to be when I grow up. He is a man worth aspiring to. Job was faithful. He was sober-minded. He was humble. I mean, just those three labels. I want to be faithful. I want to be sober-minded. I want to be humble. And God blessed him in profound and bountiful ways. Now, I I know that you know that his obedience did not automatically give him a free pass from trouble. All of these good things that I've said about Job are true. I also said that God blessed him in bountiful ways, but we want to make sure that we don't create a formula here that, that, that this equals that, and it will always be that way. Occasionally, you'll hear it stated or implied this way. Well, he was a good guy. I don't know why that happened to him. Of all the people to have something terrible happen, I would never have thought it would have been him. Now, this is where we want to be careful because this could be a trap to believe that if any of us do good, God will bless us. Or even worse, God must bless us because we have done the right things. Here's the truth. God does not have to reward us with blessings that fit our preferences, whether we are a good guy or a good gal or not. I mean, this kind of thinking can really entangle your motives. It can twist you up and run your thoughts off sound theological tracks. It's a setup for anger and bitterness toward God, especially when bad things happen to us. I mean, if you put yourself in the crucible with Job, where you're trying to do good, you're a man from us, and you just fear God, you love him, and you go about doing good, and then your world falls apart. And if you have a formulaic understanding of God, or if you believe in the retributive principle that if I do good, God will bless. If I do bad, God will get me for that. If that is how we think about God in our theology, I mean, it will mess us up. It can even create jealousy in our heart as hurting souls think about others who are not suffering as much. 
especially those who are not trying to walk with God. And I have heard that in counseling where people are going through genuine struggles. I mean, they're really, they're really suffering. And then they look over the landscape of their lives and they see other people. It's like, wow, they're just being blessed and they have vacation time and they have uh, multiple cars and a second home and so forth. And they, they, they're not trying. They're, they're carnal Christians or they're not Christians at all. That is where we want to be careful because that is the devil's or that was the devil's insinuation about Job that he only served God because God blessed him. And so how about you? What do you believe? What are your motives for serving the Lord? I mean, would you take time just to be, be privately vulnerable just be privately honest, just between you and the Lord. Do you believe in the retributive principle? If I do good, God will bless me. If I do evil, God might get me for that. I hope not. And so I would appeal to you to slow down just long enough to seriously consider those questions because they are trajectory setting. They will not only position you for where you are today, uh, but they will establish and determine the path that you are going down. Do you serve God for something? That was the insinuation from the devil to God about Job. Do you serve God for nothing? Do you serve God for yourself or his glory? Those are good questions to slow down, be vulnerable, be transparent, be honest just between you and the Lord. Job did not initially realize that what was happening to him was from the hand of the Lord. Now, it seems later as he was reflecting on all of this, specifically in Job chapter 4, verse 9, he, he called it the blast of God. And you can kind of see that in a picture as God blows ever so softly. Omnipotent God blowing ever so softly is enough to crumble the world. And though his troubles were a mystery to him, the fire from God did fall. The winds, the blast of God's breath did blow. And in a matter of minutes, Satan had destroyed Job's sacred, sanctified, and satisfying life. Sometimes there is a desire on our part to protect God's reputation especially in moments of deep and mysterious trials. When we cannot solve the mystery and we feel pressed for answers, the temptation could be to defend God. I know in counseling it can be that way. <clears throat> the counselor can feel that from the counselee when they're asking these sovereign questions that we do not have answers for. Why did God allow this to come into my life? Why did my biological parents give me up? Why, what, why was I adopted? Why did uh, my baby die? These are sovereign, mysterious questions, and we can feel pressed to give an answer when in reality we just don't know. And the temptation could be to defend God and to defend his reputation. This response does not help God. It doesn't help us. It doesn't help other people. Let me just state the case plainly as far as Job is concerned. God blindsided Job while he was doing good. There's no other way to explain it. And why would, why would we? Because it's so clear. I mean, there was a backstory conversation between God and Satan. It's right there in the text. This is what happened. Job was not part of that committee. 
The Lord removed the hedge surrounding Job and his family, and all hell broke loose on them. The radicalness of God demands that we understand how he will allow pain and suffering in our lives. God is a radical God. Within minutes, Job was sitting in the squalor of his brokenness and everything that used to be was no more. The first thing that would come to my mind in a situation like that would be, why, Lord? It would be easy for me to not only question God about what had happened, but to even yield to the temptation by accusing him. And I did that. I did that. But Job was different for me. And that's why I want to spend time in his first chapter. Because I am not, I was not like him. Job's response to his suffering was stunning. Rather than blaming God, he took the opportunity during his darkest trial to praise the one that he loved the most. I want you to listen what happened moments after the dust settled. I want you to be amazed by his response. Perhaps you can do as I did and aspire to be like Job should trouble come into your life. And so here are those last three verses of the first chapter of Job. It goes like this. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground. And here it is. And worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Those three verses are some of the most profound that you will ever read when it comes to being blindsided while doing good. When Job fell on the ground, he worshiped the Lord. It, it bears repeating. He worshiped the Lord. Job's response to God was not the case with me. And again, that's why I wanted to spend time in this book and I trust in this chapter, and I trust, I trust it will benefit you too. When devastation came into my life, I also fell to the ground. I literally fell to the ground. I went running through our little mobile home after I realized that my wife and our two children were gone, that they had left, that my life has been radically altered, never to return to normalcy or that kind of normalcy again. And it was as though I, I lost my mind and I ended up falling to the ground, weeping. But the difference was that I did not worship God in that moment or even the days that followed. I cried and I wailed and I longed for God to return my lost things. And those things were my wife and two small children who left never to return. There could only be one human-centered response to my tragedy. God makes things right according to my interpretation of what should be right in my situation. Besides, all things work together for good. Paul told us that in Romans, and God hates divorce. Malachi told us that, and so forth and so on. So how could it be otherwise? God was going to give me what I wanted, the way I wanted it, and when I wanted it. And as the days ambled by and God was not answering my prayer requests the way that I laid them out for him, I was so clear 
my heart began to turn to that old suffering saint in the Old Testament. I didn't want to go there because I knew enough about his story to know that it did not align with what I hoped to gain from the hand of God. And as I began to submerge myself in the book of Job, my heart was simultaneously stunned and overwhelmed. Then it was convicted and encouraged, eventually motivated and directed, or may I, may I say redirected. Job taught me there was a better way. There was a better object for my worship, which would be the more accurate way of stating it. Rather than placing my faith in what I lost or God's ability to return my lost life, the Lord led me to reestablish. He redirected me, redirected my faith in him which was not contingent on the losses or the gains. It kind of sounds like what Paul was saying in Philippians 3a, the loss of all things for the greater, the greater good of receiving Christ. And he was okay with that, but I was not. When unpleasantness comes into your life, what is your response? Maybe just taking time to Slow down and be vulnerable, be transparent, be honest but between you and the Lord. And just examine the turnings of your heart when bad things happen to you and what they reveal after being cast into the throes of disappointment. I'm not asking these questions as your critic. I am not. I'm asking them as a student, as a student who has gone through uh, those difficult times. As a student who sat where you may be sitting, what I have learned in the crucible of suffering is that how you answer the questions that I'm asking you will reveal what holds sway over your heart. There is a true and living God, and there are also little G-O-Ds as well, and we will worship one or the other and it's important that we discern the object of our worship. And in the crucible of suffering, when the heat is coming down on you, the object of your worship will rise above the rubble of your trouble as it did during the dark times in Job's life. Job did not have a worship disorder, at least not at the beginning of his trial. Though he was a saint who occasionally sins, which his later ordeal does reveal as we move past Job chapter 1. But right now, I want to settle in. He knew whom he believed. And yet his soul did go into a myriad of complexities after his initial worship time right here, right now in Job chapter 1. But at the beginning of the crucible, as you just heard, he was very clear-headed. And so let's look at what he said. I want to roll back through it. We'll look at, let's look at verse 21 right now. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. He immediately acknowledged his dependence on God, which is what we read in the word naked, as he covered the entire spectrum of his life. Job came into the world dependent, naked, Upon the Lord. And Job knew that he would leave this world dependent, naked upon the Lord. From pillar to post, he was bum naked, and any good thing between his entrance and his exit was not a promise, but a perk. 
And whether, whether it, it was his past, present, or future, Job was self-aware of how he was naked and open before God, and he did not shrink back from a God-centered dependency by striving to rely on himself. He was weak and broken, but not a fool. He knew what name to bless and the hand that brought forth both blessing and curse. To become self-reliant in your darkest hour is similar to speeding down the interstate, blindfolded as your steering wheel comes off in your hand. There you are, naked, totally dependent on a higher power. What will you do? Who will you turn to for help? What strategies are best for this situation? For me, somewhere between my naked entrance into this world and my yet-to-be-naked exit from this world, I became self-sufficient. I mean, to put it plainly, I, I forgot God, albeit subtly, but, but subtle enough to ignore robust theological necessities. Think about it in the biological, physical life. As an infant, I learned to roll over and crawl. As a toddler, I mastered walking, talking, feeding, and fending for myself. As a young adult, I drifted from a dependency mindset as though I no longer needed God. It was a worldview that, that revered doing it my way, when in reality, I was a nobody with no ability to manage anything well. The fool says there is no God in his heart, and he is doubly a fool to live as though he does not need God. Job did not think the way that I did. He was a God-aware, God-centered, God-trusting man. Do you see the humbling value of God reminding you how you are naked and needed, need Him? Suffering does that for us. That's what it did for him. When everything was stripped away, he realized that he's a dependent man, that he's naked from pillar to post. Sometimes children need loving parents to remind them that they are not the center of the universe or the king of the world. What would you be like today without the humbling hand of God working for you in you? There were some, fo some folks in Genesis who lived as though there was no God, hoping to establish themselves as a God. So they began building a tower to heaven. And then the Lord gave them a divine reminder. We see all this in Genesis 11, that he is God alone and only he can sit on the sphere of this earth and so Job said, naked I came and naked I shall go. And then he said, he followed up with, blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I love that statement. A great way of understanding it is by thinking about what he did not say. Job did not say, blessed be the hand of the Lord. Do you see the difference? It is one of those transformational differences. Job was laser-locked on the right thing, the name, not the hand. His primary concern was not what the Lord gave to him or took away from him. What mattered to Job was God's name, not God's gifts. Typically, when I came home in the afternoons when our kids were younger, they would inevitably run into the garage to greet me, and inevitably they were curious about what I brought home, home for them as they looked to catch a glimpse of a hopeful blessing in their daddy's hand. I would have a lollipop from the bank or, 
some chips or something inexpensive that I picked up during my errands. It was a fun way to lavish them in simple ways, but I noticed after a while that they showed more concern for what I brought to them than for me, than for their dad. And so they would run into the garage and they were always laser locked on my hands and it was as though I did not exist. It was one of those small hurts, those little bitty hurts as a parent that reminds you that it might be time to change things up a bit because I was unwittingly training our children to lower their sight lines to my hand, ignoring me. Job was not like this. His eyes were not on God's hands, but on God's name. Most assuredly, he loved what God gave him. No question. We would too. He's human, but he was not managed by the gift, but by the giver. Because Job's response was so different from mine, I had to settle into those final few verses of chapter 1, thinking through how I, I need to change. I need to change who I am as a person if I'm going to maintain my sanity Now, perhaps you're more like Job than me. If you are, I I genuinely rejoice in where you are with your walk with God. It's a great place to be, no doubt. Perchance any of you are like me and not so much like Job, it would be a fruitful time to self-assess. Are you more interested in what God will give you or what he may take away from you? Do you typically praise the Lord regardless of what you receive from him? Now, my questions fit nicely into Paul's appeal to give thanks for all things in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. A very short appeal, a very short sentence in all things, give give thanks. And this is what Job was doing in Job chapter 1. The best way to answer my questions about you as you self-assess is to think about how you responded when you didn't get what you wanted. And maybe you can just reflect and think about the last difficult thing that was disappointing to you. I'm not asking you these things as though I have arrived. This battle in me is continual. Though my wife left multiple decades ago, that dark night of the soul, my sight lines can still lower to God's hands rather than his holy name. My penchant for self-serving motives has necessitated the good Lord to repeatedly remind me of this truth. And any loving parent would do that too. And with each blessed reminder, he is nudging me closer to living more like his son. And then this passage wraps up in verse 22. It says, In all this Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. Some people have characterized Job as a whiny person. Now, perhaps later on, he was a little bit whiny, But when you think his response, you think about his response at the end of chapter one, it could not be any more profound. I mean, you listen to the final line that that he sinned not and he did not blame God. I mean, right before the curtain brings us to this suspenseful end, we learn that in all these things, Job did not sin or charge God foolishly. Isn't that incredible? I mean, could you just linger here for a moment? Could we just hunker down while reflecting upon how he responded to God before crawling out of the epicenter of his tragedy? 
There are more complex intricacies to his trouble to talk about as we progress through his book, but it would be profitable to focus on this significant piece of grace operating in his heart at this moment as he staggers around the worst thing that had ever happened to him. What response would you have if you suffered such a great loss? What is the one thing in your life you think you could not live without? Name it just for a moment, briefly, just reflect, just for a moment. If your answer is someone or something other than God, you could be only moments away from sinning and charging God foolishly. When I lost the three dearest people in my life, it took me four years to fully adjust my thinking about God and the redemptive purposes of suffering. The first chapter of Job represents only part of the things the Lord wanted me to discern and apply. It took me two years to process this chapter, just this chapter. I felt I could not press on until I wholly owned God's words through my old friend Job. These last three verses specifically. His response to tragedy seemed to be an unscalable mountain. Mercifully, the Lord buried me in this chapter because he was relentless in his love for me. The Spirit of God persistently revealed how I could not move on to the end of Job's book with a heart of transformed freedom until I singularly directed my worship to Lord Jehovah alone. I had a twisted heart. I was a two-master lover. You remember what Jesus talked about in Matthew 6, 24. You can't serve two masters. I was a, I was a twisted two-master lover. I wanted the Lord plus a few other things. In time, God restored my soul to himself, and I began to see him in previously hidden ways. Knowing God and experiencing God are two different things. There are a lot of Christians who know him but only a few who have experienced him in the way which Paul longed to know him in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him, the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. Most of us intuitively know the radical nature of God, and it scares us, and it should. God is a terrible God who wanted Job to experience him beyond the intellectual know-how that you can glean in a, semina in a semin seminary or a church Bible study. There is only one path for this kind of divine experiential profundity. It looks like a crucible. For Jesus, it was a wine press called Gethsemane. Everyone's context with God is different, but the purpose is always the same, to love and to worship him above anything else in our lives. I've titled this, How to Respond When Blindsided While Doing Good. Again, you can just type the word blindsided in the search box at lifeovercoffee.com and you'll find this article. There will be a accompanying podcast. And then there will be a, this video that I'm making as well, and you can read, watch, or listen. Before I uh, wrap up here, I just have a few uh, final thoughts. In Job 42, 5 and 6, we have zipped all the way to the end of the book. Job said this, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. I am unsure what Job expected from God at the beginning of his ordeal. He had a genuine but basic understanding of God. 
And after you come to the end of his book, you hear him talking about his myopic experience with God and what it's like when he rips the curtain back and allows him to see God in the crucible. God blessed him in the beginning and transformed him in the end. Through the crucible of suffering, Job saw what he was supposed to see, and he was eventually set free. My appeal to you, as I examine myself, is to carefully consider these things. Consider the things that blindsight you. You do not have to miss the blessing of extraordinary suffering and the divine fruit that only God can produce through those unwanted challenges. And so here are just a couple of questions for you. As you hear the last three verses of Job chapter 1, what goes through your mind? I trust that you would look at verses 20, 21, 22, and that you will either journal them or that you would talk to a friend about your thoughts as you read those three verses as I've laid them out here. Number two, I have broken them up into several parts. We've gone through those parts. What about if you took those parts and then you rank them in order of difficulty from hardest to least hard? All of them are hard. But would you just rank them as I've broken them up? I mean, you can get this article off our website and you can see how I've broken them up and just rank them in order from hard to to least hard. And then would you journal or would you speak to someone about why you rank them the way that you did? I mean, maybe you don't struggle so much with naked I came into the world, naked I shall return. Maybe you struggle more with blessed his name because you're so laser locked on his hand and not his name. Or maybe the last part, in all this, he did not sin or charge God foolishly. I would love for you as you think about those things and and go through each one of those statements by Job, maybe start developing a life plan with action steps so that you can face those challenges that you're thinking about. And I would love for you to keep in mind that as you go through this, that this is just not another article to read, uh, just not something to listen to, and you move on to the next thing. Uh, Now, what I am sharing with you is, is not primarily for the casual or the curious, but for the concerned and the convicted, the convicted Christian who wants to experience change as they persevere in their crucible of suffering. And so take time. Take as much time as you need. Uh, You don't need to go on to anything else if this is the thing that God is really pointing out to you. So how to respond when blindsided while doing good. Thank you so much. And we have plenty more resources at lifeovercoffee.com. And if we can serve you, please, uh, please just jump on our website and just just have a field day going through all of our uh, free resources in a read, watch, or listen format. Thank you so much and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.